0: Welcome to the Born to Write podcast, dedicated to writers, authors, and the art of storytelling. Go behind the scenes where writers reveal their ups and downs and how they finally shared their stories with the world. Now, here is your host, Azul Tirones.
1: Welcome, everybody, back to another episode of Born to Write. I'm so excited to have today my friend and, uh, well, actually a client, Dr. Sean Woodley, who's here, the author of MC Means Move the Class. How to Spark Engagement and Motivation in Urban and Culturally Diverse Classrooms. Dr. Woodley, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm extremely excited to be here, and I, I truly consider it a privilege to be a part of this.
1: Yes. You know, we got connected sort of through a mutual friend, mm-hmm. but I had no idea we'd have so much to talk about in relationship to your book. And most people maybe don't know about you, but we're going to let them learn about you here. Tell us how you got to this place of focusing on education and your background, what you do when you're not an author, and what your focus is in the education world?
0: Well, to be quite frank, my original intent was not education because I grew up on music. I played music. as a, I was a musician in the church, and the band. And so leaving high school, I was not thinking about anything else other than becoming a professional musician. And I had one teacher that pretty much changed the trajectory of everything. And he said, he encouraged me. He said, you know, when you go to college, you can still study music. But he was like, I would just implore you to leave your options open and study music and education. That way you can still do the music side of everything, but you'll have you'll be more well rounded and come out better prepared with a license and everything. So I said, Oh, okay. I don't think that's too bad. And I'm I'm so glad that I did that because I absolutely love teaching. I I taught public school for 10 years and have been teaching at the college level now for a few years. I I absolutely love it. I really, really do.
1: Right. And the reason I I thought it was such a fascinating move is that, you know, you brought that love of music into the classroom. You you Mm -hmm. were in the classroom and you were a music teacher. One of the things that interested me is that a lot of people think, oh, that's interesting. That's a class that kids want to go to. I don't Mm -hmm. think everyone realizes, not a teacher, not everybody wants to go to music class. They got signed up for an elective (sighs) or their friend talked them into it. Tell us about that.
0: It's one of those things where the appeal can seem make it seem like that, but you have those who just think, oh, this is stupid. I don't want to go here. But you have to make the class just like with anything else. The content is only going to go but so far. So I had to really make it a learning experience for my students to make it something that they wanted to actively participate in. And that took a, lot of, took a lot of effort. It really, really did.
1: Right. And one of the things that I observed in this journey is you had a different way of seeing things. And we talked about this early on in the book. In fact, when you came to write this book, this was still the notion you wanted to write about this idea of MC moves a class, but it sort of evolved. Talk mm-hmm. about where this this idea came from that you could use your life as the DJ, what you talked about in your book that you mm-hmm. were a DJ, you you played music in the evenings, or even as you were a teacher. Where does the idea that teaching was more like a an art of the DJ than, than it even was the art of teaching?
0: Sure. Well, as you mentioned, I spent pretty much my entire life, my entire career of, of teaching kind of moonlighting as a DJ. And so on pretty much most weekends, Friday, I would come to work and I would have my turntables in my trunk. And I would leave work, go home, maybe catch a nap or something if I could. And then I would go on to DJ and be the MC for different events, whether they were local clubs, whether they were, I did retirement parties, weddings, anything that requires somebody with two turntables and a mic. I've probably had some sort of experience with it and I absolutely loved it. I really, really did. And I began to see the correlation between my responsibility as a DJ and an MC for the crowd. The title evolves from a hip-hop song from the 80s that was from a group called Eric B and Rakim. And the title of that specific song is Eric B is President. And one of the like iconic lines in that song is where he says, MC means to move the crowd. And that's always stuck out to me. Not only because those guys, they literally impacted so much of where I grew up on Long Island and in New York and hip hop just in general but I began to to see what they mean what they meant by that because he treated that role as an MC not not just as a role but as a responsibility and it became a cycle of energy when you see that MC in front of the crowd and he feeds off the energy of the crowd and the crowd feeds off the energy of him and it just goes back and forth and so I began to see that in my role as a DJ and a an MC, but then also in the classroom, because mm. I was the facilitator of not just learning, but an exchange of energy. Right. And I, I began to notice that my students didn't want to be there unless I wanted to be there. And I had to encourage them, and I had to make sure that I brought that energy for them to feed off of. And then I, in turn, was able to feed off of their energy, and it was a, a constant cycle An exchange of energy that continued to grow and grow and make the learning and the environment just a really, really dynamic place.
1: Right. You know, I can't imagine how your students feel now that you're a college professor and you you teach (laughs) students who are becoming teachers and Mm -hmm. in the field. I'm sure you're the hippest professor they have. Um, (laughs) Just the idea that you would write this book, and that's the thing that struck me. When we first started working together, you wanted to write this book. You had this notion, but mm-hmm. it was really hard to separate the academic voice that we typically yes. work in, even from the administrator voice, uh, the, 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 the lead teacher voice into yes. more of a narrative voice where you're actually trying to, to connect with those who you're most desired to impact. Because this really is a book for people that who may be in, be in education, trying to hang in mm-hmm. there, but not sure they want to stay. Tell right. us about what that journey was like. How did you find that voice?
0: It was difficult at first because I was so used to writing and even reading in that academic tone. That's what my brain wanted to do. And it was an internal struggle because I knew from the beginning that I wanted this to be different, but I wasn't sure how. And so I was just very appreciative that with your help, I was able to Recognize that I was going in a different direction than I originally wanted to go and to differentiate between the two voices to make sure I've written a dissertation. I've, I've written dozens and dozens of papers. I don't want to do that anymore. I'm, I'm done. I've hung up that hat. If I wanted it to be, you know, an, an academic article or journal or, or, or something like that, a textbook, then, then that, that's, that's something completely different. I, I wanted this to reach the people with whom it was intended to reach. And I think that the best way to do that is with a voice that they can recognize, with a voice that they can relate to. And and you were able to help me to do that.
1: Well the truth was that it was always in you. I think you just needed permission to say, yeah, you could write this book however you choose. True. And I think once you realized that and found that voice, it was it was actually it was quite magical to watch because I think you looked at that classroom teacher who who went in this thinking they could change the world, they could connect, and then they realized, man, this bureaucracy, this system of teaching is not just about caring about kids and teaching great content. Mm-hmm. it's a lot harder than you think and oh, yeah. especially in urban and culturally diverse classroom. let's talk about that. Why is it so difficult for people to connect with this population people even if they are people of color or, or come mm-hmm. from the setting themselves, why is it so hard to be a classroom teacher in this in this environment?
0: It boils down to one primary thing with a couple of, of subcategories, but that that major stumbling block is culture from what I've seen and experienced myself and what the research tells you. And if you really talk to people who are in the field, you can really trace everything back and peel the layers back to culture. And you've already hinted towards it. But one of the rude awakenings that I had was as somebody who was African-American, who was black going into a classroom that had a significant portion of African-American, black or children of color I would already have an advantage and I was good. And then I was sadly mistaken because (laughs) even though we may have the same at large ethnicity or cultural background, there are sub levels of culture that can be very, very different. And there are a lot of misunderstandings when it comes to that. And then compound on that with people who are not of the same cultural or ethnic background at all Now you add even more complexities to that. And so it's just very, it can be very, very different trying to establish a relationship and communicate with someone who interprets life around them very differently than you do. Neither one is wrong, but there are just differences in how we communicate and interpret the world around us. And, and once that's, that's one of the major things that I dive into right from the outset of this book is really learning to shift our paradigm so that we can expose Some of these existing paradigms that we have, I call them scholastic paradigms, where the the traditional teacher role and that traditional mold of the student and what that is supposed to look like. When we peel back the layers to uncover any pre-existing assumptions that we have, then we begin to just acknowledge that they're there, which is a huge, huge first step.
1: Right. You know, I think about me as my, you know, like the average Teacher stays in the classroom for three to five years, you know, Uh sure. and I definitely was one of those three to five years. In fact, I left after my first year teaching. I don't know if I told um, you this. No, I didn't know. I was plopped into a classroom. I went to a, an interview and I treated it like an audition because at the time I was working in television and film and I just said, you know what, I'm going to act the part. I don't know a thing about teaching. <laughs> it was inner city LA. It's, you know, the 90s and they couldn't find teachers anywhere. They were looking sure. everywhere. So obviously- I had a little bit of background teaching theater, but that's very different to be a director of a, of a two hour program once a week than it is to, to command an inner city classroom. So Absolutely. I went from teaching in, in, you know, Beverly Hills, which obviously talk about diverse in yeah. relationship to other places to being in an inner city classroom. And I thought this is the hardest job I've ever had in my life. Mm-hmm. And now they want me to go back to school. I was lecturing college, you know, just a few months before and mm-hmm. now they w- want me to go to school. And I just said, this is not for me. I don't think I can do this. So I left. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people think that too, like this is really hard. It's harder than it should be. And it's not very, you know, at first you feel like there's so much going against you, but it's when you find that spark of some child, of some moment that you realize you have an impact to make, you could really Mm -hmm. change. Where was that moment for you when you realized this teachings for me?
0: It was, I would say going into from my second to my third year was the biggest transformation for me. Because I had a lot of insecurities going into being an educator. I, I felt at the time it was confidence, but that was, it wasn't really truly confidence. I, I was very good at acting the part, but deep down inside, there were really, really some things that I had to kind of learn and discover about myself. And I just wasn't sure how. And I'm not, I think to a certain extent, I was afraid to because it, there was a certain level of vulnerability that comes along with that. But really, once I began to realize the impact that I had on my students and how they looked up to me as somebody who was really an impact on their future, it hit me one day and I said, okay, I've got to make sure that I do this thing right. I have to make sure that I come prepared because these children, not the sound cliche, they are our future. And who am I to derail any sort of dreams, goals that they have? Because I am being lazy in my approach with this. And so that was when I really began to buckle down, start to do some more reading. And not too long after that, I went back to school, began to actively participate in more staff development opportunities, leadership positions, and, and things of that nature.
1: Right. And I think that's a key, like not isolating. It's an isolating position because for for most of the day, you're talking to young people and there are mm-hmm. different rules you behave when you're with your class and how you engage them. And then you have to, working with adults can be a totally different thing that can, mm-hmm. you, you could get burnt out by the other teachers way Listen. more than, than the, <laughs> the students. Sometimes the students are the breath, of, the breath of fresh air and then you head back to the water cooler and you got to plug your ears and hang in there. Yes. So do you have a student that like, you can think of that really made an impact on you for some reason because you did something you wish you could do over or Absolutely. that you mm-hmm. had such a connection and they had a profound impact on you as a person?
0: There's one particular student that I had, and this kind of goes back to what I was saying before about those first couple of years, I taught in a way that was very impersonal I kind of, I was that teacher because of the, the school that I was in and the, what was said about it. I let other people's judgment about the school and about the children impact what I did and how I walked into that classroom. And so from day one, I tried to rule with an iron fist and I was very, very closed off to any sort of personal relationships. And I was very, very strict. I did not allow, I did, I barely smiled which is just the type of person that I am. It's completely against my natural personality and it didn't feel right, but it felt like that's what I had to do in order to manage these kids. And I'm saying that kind of with the air quotes. And so I got a phone call one day from a parent, a student parent, and she told me that in my classroom, her daughter was scared. And that right, that one moment right there, and I knew it And when I thought about the young lady, she'd never done, mind you, she'd never done anything wrong, never, you know, said anything. She was just one of those people that kind of almost played the role of the invisible student, did what she was supposed to do, never really acted out, didn't really raise her hand too much, but was just there and flew under the radar. But when that parent told me that she was scared in my classroom, that did it for me. That told me that something needed to change and something needed to change right now. And so the first thing that I did was I put all of my pride aside and I went and spoke with that young lady and I apologized. And I told her that she did not need to be afraid when she walked into my classroom. Moreover, I made sure that I changed my behavior after that because it's one thing to apologize in vocally, but then follow that up with unchanged behavior completely negating the apology. Mm. I made sure that I followed that up with actions. I made sure that I smiled. I was very intentional about establishing relationships with my students, especially her, to make her at ease because what what we don't realize sometimes is and I talk about this in my book about balance, you know, you have those classrooms sometimes where things are with the crossfader model that I use all the way to the left and just complete chaos out of control. My classroom was the kind of classroom where things were all the way to the right and constricting. And so students that were in my classroom, it was very cold. It was a very tense environment. It was very, it was one that they, because they were operating out of fear and out of not feeling like they could ask questions. Now we're talking about limiting success because they don't want to ask any questions when they don't understand something. They don't want to engage the way that somebody would when they are in an environment that is welcoming and comfortable. So that was a a huge, almost 180 in how I approached the entire profession.
1: Right. You know, and that's, there's some of that teacher folklore. I mean, it's been going around for years, like don't smile to December, you know, this idea that you have to be hard. And I think Mm -hmm. that's, this is general perception about how to act is totally incorrect. And I'm grateful that you're talking about how to to do this with students who need us the most. Now, being yourself in the classroom is, like you said, a vulnerable activity, because what Mm -hmm. if it goes wrong? What if it goes Mm -hmm. astray? I have control now. And that's the thing. Teachers are always trying to be in control and giving up control by being yourself is a big risk. What is something that a, a new teacher or maybe a teacher has been in a year or two who's like, this may not be for me. They're thinking, man, I, I think, I mean, I, I went to a good school. I worked hard. I think, mm-hmm. you know, this profession isn't quite what I expected. I like these kids, but I'm not sure I am the person to do this. What would you say to them?
0: I would say to really step back and examine the underlying thoughts With that sentiment because there's something there. There's a disconnect somewhere. Like you ended up in that classroom and you put that time in for a reason. Teaching is not one of those careers that many people choose, obviously for the money first and foremost. There was something there that drove you to that and that is still there. Now, a lot of those issues that come up along the way, a lot of those seeds of doubt that can come up once you get into the classroom can be remedied with the proper information. That's a lot of what I intended to do with this book, with the four elements of urban education, is to fill in those gaps so that educators can learn how to position themselves to be their best and true authentic selves in the classroom, enjoy the learning more, enjoy teaching more, enjoy the students more, and then be more successful.
1: That's great. So let's talk about this. How did it, I mean? What was the move for you to mm-hmm. go from the classroom? Obviously, you you talked about being in leadership roles. Then you mm-hmm. moved to do a supervisory role as I think mm-hmm. you were administrator for a while in schools. What was the impetus or the desire to move or leap to the university, and how did that come about?
0: It came from my my studies at the doctorate level, and I I felt that I was one that always in my leadership role I would facilitate certain workshops and learning experience, professional development, just kind of trying to help with other educators in the building. And I was always, it's a combination of that. And I was always that teacher when another educator struggled with a student, they would say, go to Mr. Woodley's class or go talk to Mr. Woodley. I'm walking down the hallway. Mr. Woodley, can you talk to somebody such and such? And so I knew that there were certain things that I understood that others didn't. And so I would use that information in my professional development and I said, "Well, how can I get this outside of these walls? You know, these are only, you know, a few dozen educators at a time that I get to work with on a year-to-year basis, but how can I spread this message more? What can I do?" And so that's when I began to shift my focus to teaching at the college level and working with current and future educators so that I could have as large an impact as possible and keeping that going with this book and the, the trainings and the keynotes and the presentations and workshops that I offer now.
1: So let's talk about this. How did your peers respond to this non-academic style work and even your philosophy? Like, was there mm-hmm. tension in the, in the university in relationship to you? Were you always the one saying, wait, 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 let's think differently? Or were you finding that people were were also aligning with this thinking? Because I'm I've not been in the the university setting for several years now. So tell me about what what's going on when you kind of bring this approach this conversation.
0: It's actually received very well, and I use these experiences to present at different workshops. I go to conferences and I network, and I go there as me. This is that you you are going to get Dr. Sean Woodley and his our true, authentic self at these workshops, and I have yet to have a problem. It's my voice is different. My voice, I think, is a little bit fresh. It's a little bit re. Uh, what's the word that I'm looking for? It's. Uh, I try to bring an invigorating presence to my presentation in my workshops, and it's really, really well received at these events. It really, really is.
1: So, are you doing this more and more? Or are you still working in the university setting? Yes, doing both. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about the process because as a lot of people listen to this aren't educators like we could go, mm-hmm. you and I could just go on and on about education. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and maybe we'll do that at another time at a different podcast. But what I'm thinking here is like, so when you showed up to do this work, it's not that it's the longest document in the world, but it was, they're met with a lot of resistance when you're working on this. There was a lot of places at which as if they were gravel in the gears when kind of finding this book, uh, how mm-hmm. you wanted to say it, who your ideal reader would be. Talk about the process. What was, how was it like, and how was it different than something like a a doctoral thesis or a doctoral, you know, a dissertation? And what, what were the things you were trying to do here that, to kind of help adjust your mind in getting this work done?
0: It was, first of all, it's night and day between some sort of academic writing and it's just not what I'm used to. And I tried to do this, but before I started working with you, I was just trying to go about this on my own and figure out some things. And I, I had the, I guess I had the frame, if you will, it was just the details that needed a lot of work. And so just going back to those mind mapping exercises to to take it back to square one and think more on the the creative side as opposed to the analytical side of everything and trying to flush out those details, making sure that I put the the story behind the lessons to to make sure that it is something that people can relate to and making sure that I stay grounded in the narrative that I want to communicate and keeping my avatar in mind. Just making sure that the teacher who is in that classroom with students that are different than he or she culturally, or the teacher that is in that classroom in his or her first year And struggling with the decision of whether or not this is the right thing to do or that teacher that's still in college and about to embark on this profession, what do they need to hear and how do they need to hear it? So just kind of staying grounded in that working through coming up with a formal manuscript, if you will, then going through the editing process, which was extremely humbling. Because as, as much as I'd like to think that I'm rather intelligent, the red marks that came back on that, uh, can lead you to believe otherwise, but it's all a part of the process. And I, I, I didn't, you know, I don't take those things personally because it's such a, a refining process that has to happen. I was, I was telling a colleague about the book written by. I can't think of his name, and I have it here on my shelf somewhere. The, I want to say he's either the editor or, the, excuse me, the director or the writer for Toy Story. It's called Creativity Inc. And he was talking about the process because of Toy Story, if I'm not mistaken, was one, it's the first cartoon or what is that type of, of animated animated film that's not a musical. And there were they were met with some adversity and some challenges up front, but the revision process that they had every step of the way where they sent it to someone and got feedback, utter, raw, truthful feedback that hurt and that did not always feel good, but they did that over and over and over again and came out with the phenomenal work that is what we know today of Toy Story. and We all know that that went on to, to do millions upon millions. In there, I think they're working on number four right now. But that process, that revisionist creative, that revisionist process of creativity is much needed. And so I understand that. And it just applying that to the book, it, it somebody can tell you all day, well, it's going to hurt. Like you go to the dentist and you know, it's going to hurt. And until you actually really feel that, then you realize it's going to hurt. And so with that process of the revisions and kind of taking it back to the drawing board or clarifying this, what are you really trying to say here? And, and writing in a way that I know what I'm trying to say. Why don't you know what I'm trying to say? It's, it's It can be difficult sometimes. And so getting that feedback though, at the end of the day, it served a really, really good purpose.
1: Right, and I think that's the thing about writing a book. Sometimes mm-hmm. even, even our friend uh, and colleague, uh, fellow author, Heather Lee uh, mm-hmm. uh, Dyer, she, she's a fiction author. She's written multiple series as a fiction writer. But when you go to do a, a new genre and nonfiction has its own way of like getting you um, sure. because it's, I mean, I asked you to show up on a page. I asked all authors, look, it doesn't matter that you're telling information about things you know, if you don't show up, they're not going to listen to you, trust you, or believe that this is important. Uh, sure. Anchor yourself in stories, anchor yourself in your truth, just like you do in the classroom. So I think it was just a little bit of trusting that in your voice as a writer. And I love the way you got you got more and more playful as you got into it. You know, <laughs> rather than be parts of a book, they're their sides A and B, rather than be chapters, yes. their tracks, and rather mm-hmm. you know, you just went all in and I thought it was beautiful because you designed your own cover. You mm-hmm. you did some beautiful work there. You also have a podcast, which I want you to talk about here in a second, but I think you've created this as a branding opportunity to grow not just uh, the content of the book, but to grow platforms. So hey, look, I'm here to announce Sure. I want to talk to you differently about urban education and working with culturally diverse populations. Tell me a little bit about what your plan is, was for launching this because a lot of people listening maybe even have a book, but what did mm-hmm. you do to get this book out? Cause I know in new releases, you hit number one, you were getting mm-hmm. a lot of attention, but you definitely had a plan to get this to go live and have impact.
0: Yes. I, I had a plan that originally rent went awry because I've been working on writing this for over a year and change. Now I'm not exactly sure how long. But early 2018, I had, I guess, if you will, announced that I will release it in the spring and I just for accountability purposes to let everyone know what's going on. And I definitely missed that mark because I want to say it wasn't until March that I started working with you and realized how much work needed to be done. And so that was a bit of a setback, but it actually ended up working out better for me Because releasing it in the following fall in October was better because it was towards the beginning of the school year. I also aligned it with my birthday and then it allowed me the opportunity to come up with some new ideas to redesign the cover to make sure that the layout and everything was done the way it needed to be. And also to use some different promotional opportunities and film a book trailer, which I had a lot of fun doing. So that sort of a a launch strategy, I guess if you want to call that, kind of birthed from, or not an accident, but something that wasn't my original intention, but because of that setback, it allowed me to kind of step back and approach this in a more strategic way and it ended up working out better than I think it would have had I launched it earlier in the spring.
1: Right. another thing about this, like, look, every every plan in the world works great until you have to show up and things change. So (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm glad Mm -hmm. you did that. And I think the book trailer was really cool. It got a lot of views. It it really engaged people to be curious. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even people who aren't educators were willing to share it and talk about it. And I think that the virality of creating a a conversation that keeps going is really tough. And you could keep doing that trailer again and again, and it'll still spark a conversation tell us about the trailer how did you got I noticed there was a lot it was a lot involved you did you <laughs> did you uh, script it out and, and, and get some people or those friends is it family uh, tell us about like that process I'm sure some authors here are thinking, like I like to do a book trailer but what that look like
0: it was i it was inspired from the movie hitch and in that movie will Smith was the date doctor and so this one I was the class doctor I was the one that was the fixer if you will and so I pretty much I I would say close to frame by frame tried to emulate as best possible that but the teacher version of it and so I have some good friends that are in film that I went to college with and we sat down and we had a meeting and and kind of walked through each of the frames each of the scenes and what we were going to do chose some people who would be right I explained my vision and, and how I wanted to I wanted all of this to be portrayed. We talked about camera angles. We talked about lighting, sound, music, everything that went, which is there's so much that goes behind these things. It's it's really, really a lot. But I took the time to just make sure that it was done right and it was getting down to the last minute. And so filming it, it took all day to do it. I mean, the, the trailer itself is two minutes and 20 seconds, I want to say, but it literally took about eight hours to film because there was wow. just so much involved with it, setting up this and there were the bloopers. I, we were in tears with some of this, just the things that happened. We were I had some kids that were playing the roles of students and they were just, their personalities just kept shining and shining. And it was hard for us as adults to stop laughing. So that just <laughs> added to the time, but it really, really was, it was a unique experience and I'm glad that I got to do it. And then I have some video editing software that I was able to kind of just cut splice and put everything together the way that I saw in my head.
1: That's great. I think, and, and you sound like you had a lot of fun. I did, I did. And I, really did. I, I think that's, if it, people have to have fun book marketing because a lot of authors, they want to just write the book. You know, they even forget to do the cover. Nice, you did a great cover. They think right. that if I write a book, if it's good, then people will read it and review it. Right, right. I mean, Let's talk about that for a second. I mean, how many times have you asked, Friends, those of us mm-hmm. for reviews and still haven't seen them come up for whatever reason. To me, it's the hardest part is the marketing and, and putting the book yes. out into the world. What strategy have you used that's worked for you to help some authors who are like, look, I know writing the book's hard, but like mm-hmm. marketing is twice as much work?
0: It was, I'm still working and growing in that area because I put so much into the front end of this with writing and the revisions and trying to make sure that everything was meeting my timelines and deadlines. And I I was funding this, you know, pretty much by myself. And so there was a lot of anxiety, stress that came on the front end of this. What if it doesn't work? What if people don't like it? And when that launch date came of October 18th, I was emotionally and mentally spent, but that's when things begin really. So I had to, and I, I thank you for just keeping that at the forefront of my thoughts that when you tell people about it, I've been thinking about this so long, every day, all day for months on months and, and and even years. But for some, it's the first, second time that they're hearing it. So by you saying and sharing your information or mentioning it again on social media and the way that algorithms work, you're not as pestering as it might appear to you that you may be in your own head. And right. so just kind of keeping that at the forefront of my thoughts. And then Really, just kind of cashing in. To be honest with you, on some of the relationships that I have, because the reviews and things that I'm asking for are from a lot of people who were very supportive of the book even before it came out. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm, I'm excited about it. I share. I shared a lot of the behind the scenes pictures of of me typing, or I shared the cover before it even came out. So I just tried to generate a little bit of buzz, if you will. And so by the time it came out, there were some people who had already told me that they were going to buy it, some followers on social media. And so people posted pictures. I got my copy. I downloaded the Kindle version. So these are, to a certain extent, quote unquote, relationships that have already been established or connections that have already been made. And so I've kind of just been keeping a running list and I'm going one by one. Hey, how did you like it? What do you think about it? Would you be willing to, and then kind of leveraging that opportunity for them to say, yes, no problem. I'll go ahead. I forgot. You know, People have a lot going on. So just trying to to be diligent about doing that from a personal standpoint, I I think will allow me to kind of reach that number, what that number is. I don't know, but just to get more and more.
1: Right. I think the thing that people don't realize is it takes seven impressions for someone to even kind of make Mm -hmm. a decision about something. Mm So you might feel like you've been posting forever and so much, Mm -hmm. and you've done 20 different Things on social media and they've seen two yep. or they've seen six and you think that's enough. You know, you do have to keep the pressure on and mm-hmm. feel like you're nagging on your end, but it really isn't. They need the reminder. They, they appreciate it, even though they feel guilty. They're like, mm-hmm. Oh, I, I said I was and I didn't. Oh, I'll right. do it right now. Oh, wait. The laundry needs to get done. And then they forget again.
0: They yeah, forget. Yep.
1: <laughs> so I think that's the thing. I mean, to get, I think I got 53 reviews on my book. I probably could have kept going, but like it, the months and months of asking, I had to think of every different way to ask, Hey, yeah. it's. Hey, 12 days of Christmas looking for 12 reviews every day. Or, Hey, it's my birthday. I want to get to, I think at the time I was 43 or 45. I was like, I need 45 views. I'm at <laughs> 22. Who wants to be number, you mm-hmm. know, and you just got to, you feel like a little bit uncomfortable. Yes. Um, but, but that's why I say if you care about your book and your message, don't feel comfortable about it. You're going to change somebody's life because of the message you have in there. Somebody will read it and they'll change them. But if you don't want to talk about it, how do you want anybody else to talk about it? That's true. So that's if, true. If you're like, well, I'm kind of over talking about it. Well, then I guess that's what will happen to your book. You'll, they'll be over talking about it too. So wow. you got to have a different belief about it completely. Uh, Absolutely. Books that have staying power, just people don't stop talking about it. Even if it's not good, if they talk about it, like that's the crazy thing. People think <laughs> like New York Times bestselling books are the best books. They're not. They're just the most talked about books because mm. people keep talking about it and talking about it. You see them on every podcast, every ad every show, you're like, gosh, this must be good. So eventually, even if it's not right away, you're like, you know what? I want to get that book. Yep. I think that's good. Even if you don't know if it's good, you just think it's good. Whatever it takes to get someone to open the book, because just think how much it takes to get them to buy the book and then think how much more it'll take for them to read it. Because how many books do you have that you have you bought you haven't read here? <sighs> uh,
0: i'm I'm looking at them right now <laughs> on my shelf.
1: <laughs> books you care about, believed in and yep. bought and still don't read. So like, so that's why I tell people, to get it in the hands of somebody who needs it and actually get them to read, it takes a lot of work. So you got to mm-hmm. be vigilant. You mm-hmm. got to be strong. Now you're taking this book with you on conferences and you're you're using it as a way to kind of help support the things you do. How is it received yes. when you bring books with you to these sort of workshops?
0: Actually very, very well. The cover gets a lot of people and they look at the title and they say, wow, okay. Oh, wow. And so it generates almost instant intrigue and interest, which was my goal. And so looking at it and then they might kind of glance at the back and, and kind of see the description. And it's it's really, really very well received. I've had a lot of uh, administrators place bulk orders for all the educators in their schools. And so those have been going out just off of someone else telling them or them looking at the trailer and seeing the benefit and how it can really benefit their schools. So it's really been well received.
1: That's great. And a book like this, will be relevant for a very long time. If people want to lo- know more about you, Dr. Woodley, where would they sure. find you? Where would you have them go?
0: My website is www.urbanandeducating.com. And I'm also on social media. I'm on Twitter and Instagram every day at Urban Educating.
1: That's great. And uh, if you know anyone's a teacher, if been one yourself, or you're considering it, definitely mm-hmm. MC Means Move the Class is a book to check out. really inspiring. Really, uh, I think, going to be a new wave of think of educators in the academic world to talk to people about teaching as it relates to actual teaching, as opposed to pedagogy alone. Um, mm-hmm, not that there's mm-hmm. an absence of pedagogy in your book, but it's definitely an inspiring way to think about serving and sparking engagement in the classroom. Dr. Woodley, thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I Again, I, I consider it an honor and a privilege, and I, I'm a longtime fan, and I'm just trying to get on your level. Thank you, sir.
1: <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Join me again for another interview for great authors who talk about their story, how they got there, and why they feel like they're born to write. Please subscribe to this podcast, leave an honest review, and you can always find me at CoachAzul.com.